in three, two, one. Amy Joy understands firsthand the impact of trauma and has made it her mission to help others overcome its effects. With over a decade of experience as a speaker and author, Amy has helped countless individuals navigate the healing process and move forward with their lives. In this episode, she shares her insights and strategies for overcoming trauma in order to achieve personal and professional success. So whether you are struggling with past trauma or simply want to learn more about how to support those who are, this episode is a must listen. Join me now for my conversation with Amy Joy as we delve into the world of trauma. Hey, Amy, welcome to the program. We're delighted to have you. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. Now, where are we speaking to you from today? Where are you? I am in Swartz Creek, Michigan, tiny little town just outside of Flint. Well, lovely. Now, Amy, you're a public speaker, you're an author, you're a continuing education developer, and you focus from a subject matter. And I'm kind of excited about today, tentatively excited because it's a sensitive subject that we want to talk about, but excited to learn more about it and about your journey as well. And you focus on human trafficking and you offer education seminars to businesses, corporations, nonprofits, schools, everywhere. And you're on a Mm -hmm. mission, obviously. And then also as an entrepreneur, because you have your own education system, you write books, you publish, you're in that process. So we're going to, you know, unpack a lot of that. But how did we get here? How did you get to where you're choosing, hey, human traffic and trauma and overcoming trauma? Because as business professionals, we all face trauma to different degrees and Mm -hmm. our traumas are unique to us. But there is a process to getting and dealing with trauma. And I know you deal with that. How did you get to where you are and how did you choose human trafficking as a vehicle? Yeah. So I I don't think, you know, that I chose it, but it it definitely chose me. It was not on my radar at all. So a little bit, my background, I have a bachelor's in social work and a master's in public administration, almost done with a a PhD. But when I started my bachelor's program, I started in nursing and then the wait list was too long. I was like, oh, I'll just go into social work. I started in this program in social work. The term human trafficking had sort of been kicked around a little bit. And I really didn't think that this was our issue. I grew up fundamental Baptist and I was kind of taught from little, be a missionary, be a Sunday school teacher and all of these things. Well, being a missionary was not my gig. I was like, I'm not getting on a plane. We're not going overseas to help people who've been trafficked. Not that I didn't have compassion for them, just not my area. So in 2011, I had just gone through a divorce and found myself a newly single mom with the two little kids and a little overwhelmed. And I found a flyer on one of the tables for Sunday school that said women's retreat. And I was like, all right, cool. And asked everybody I knew. And they're like, no, we're not going. So I was like, I don't care that I just need to get away for the weekend, you know? So drop the kids at dad's and off we go. And it turned out there were nine of us that ended up going that weekend. And it was in the middle of February up North in Michigan, if you imagine that a little further. So it was nothing but an ice storm and very comical getting from one place to the next. So it was a really good weekend, but I didn't realize until I got there that the whole theme of that weekend was human trafficking. And my knowledge of it was so limited. I was like, so I'm not going. So they had this missionary talking about human trafficking. And I was like, I'm going to go to divorce care for the sixth time, you know? So I got to divorce care and I put my stuff down and something was just egging at me to go back. And I tried to justify it with this while I'm in social work. So I better go just find out what this is, you know? And I went back to the main auditorium and the missionary was talking about what human trafficking looked like in the US. And she was talking my life. It was what I knew. I just didn't know it had been defined. I didn't know 
there were laws surrounding this kind of thing. I understood the elements of it. And that weekend completely changed everything. I did my very best to go home and not think about it. Uh, but it was one of those things like I felt crazy not doing something about it, not talking about it. And I'm a giant nerd. So my first go-to was research. So I went home and I researched everything I could find on human trafficking globally, nationally, statewide. What does this look like? Why did I resonate with this? And I talked to the missionary. And I was like, I don't know what to do with this, but I've got to do something. And she said, you know what, put together a presentation. So I was like, all right. So I started writing and putting together this presentation. And the following year, I went back up to the same retreat center and gave my first presentation on human trafficking identification response. And that's basically where it started. And then it grew from there. We opened a a nonprofit organization to help girls who were in foster care and been sexually abused because we knew that was one of the top indicators. Just anytime they're in foster care, that's a potential risk area. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So we know about 60 to 80% of those who are trafficked have been or currently are in the foster care system. So it's a big red flag. And almost every single person who is vulnerable to human trafficking has a history of childhood sexual abuse. So we know those two things together. We were like, oh my gosh, so where can we fit in? Where do we fill a void? So we were trying like crazy to open up this home for girls, but we didn't realize at the time the red flags the amount of money it would take, the amount of resources. And by 2020, we had dissolved that. But what happened was the education piece took on a life of its own. So by 2017, it became its own entity where I was developing these continuing education programs because people were requesting them, right? So here in the state of Michigan, all healthcare professionals have to have this training. And then it spread. Florida was like, hey, can you come down here and teach all of our hotels? And we're like, okay. So same thing like Texas and Alabama, and they all have different sectors. They're like, we need to educate these professionals. So I just started developing these programs. And as I developed the programs, it began to expand into areas of childhood abuse and brain development. So neurobiology and epigenetics and all of those things started to take on their own life. So when I give a three to six hour presentation, actually the majority of that is why are vulnerable individuals vulnerable? What happens to the brain? What happens to the individual during times of trauma? that make them vulnerable to predators. And then we talk about prevention intervention programs, which is, you know, what primarily what I do now, expressive therapies to help people through trauma. So that's basically how we got here. I started writing and just released the third novel. So it's just been a whirlwind, but I just kind of take one step at a time. I'm like, oh, that looks pretty. There's a shiny object that looks interesting. Yeah, no, I understand completely. Yeah. There's a term called trauma informed, and it's a buzzword we hear floating around these days. What does it mean to be a trauma informed professional? Oh, great question. Trauma informed simply means addressing individuals with the assumption that trauma is the indicator for the symptoms or the behaviors that we're not going to look at somebody and go, oh, they're schizophrenic. We're going to look at somebody and go, is there a trauma history here? And how can we address that first? Because what we've recognized over the last decade or more, like the 1990s was what they called the decade of the brain. We started to see all these images and things come on board, which was amazing. And we just learn more and more every year. But what we know now is most diagnoses are rooted in trauma, not a chemical imbalance or stuff like that. And the thing is you can't heal trauma with medication. So if we're looking at things from a medication point of view, if we're going, no, that's ADHD, that's schizophrenia, that's bipolar, and really trauma's at the root of it. And we give the medication, it can often destabilize. It can make things worse because we're not addressing the root issue. It's a cause and effect issue. And a lot of our assumptions, if we see bad behavior, we look at the behavior and we judge the behavior without assuming. Yeah trauma first. And what I think I hear you saying is we ought to really assume that it's not necessarily a chemical imbalance, could be, but it 
could be related to trauma as a primary cause of the whole domino starting to fall. Right, right. And to be trauma-informed is to recognize, hey, this could be a trauma issue. And I better know what trauma does to the body and the brain to understand why this person's behaving the way they are. And then what can I do about it? What simple things can I implement in my classroom or in my home or in a clinician setting to help alleviate some of these things and work through the trauma? Because it doesn't just disappear. There's no quick fix to trauma. What does it do to the brain? If you're in a traumatic event, you know, more than one sometimes, what happens? Explain the process. Yeah, great question. So I actually have a slide. It's been used millions of times, but it's amazing. So in the presentations, I show a side-by-side of someone who is a typically developing person, individual, and one who has experienced trauma over time. And what you see is massive holes, black holes in the brain where there should be activity. Because what we see on these images is where it's red is where it's most active. And in people who have experienced trauma, the red areas of the brain, the most of the activity is centered in the primal center of the brain, the brainstem, right? So it's our survival center, our fight, flight, freeze. So people who have been traumatized are walking throughout their day in a constant state of arousal or disengagement, right? So either they're oversensitive to everything in their environment or they're not sensitive at all. So it really shuts down the connections in the brain. It doesn't allow them to actually connect their emotional memories that are sort of trapped in the right side of the brain hemisphere to the left side, which is logical. It's linear, right? It's got language attached to it. So in order for me to tell my story, I've got to be able to access the left side of the brain, but I can't if everything that gets snagged is emotional, it's in the right side. So in the middle of the brain, we have the corpus, which is actually our communicator between the left and the right. It's actually like a beautiful butterfly if you ever see it on a scan. Right. But if we don't have that activated, if we don't have the parts of the brain that communicate with one another active, then we can't tell our story. And if we can't tell our story, we're operating out of old stories that we don't quite understand. We're operating out of emotions, feelings. This is what we call the PTSD response, right? Right, I'm acting this way, but I have no idea why. Yeah. Well, we disassociate, obviously, just the process of what goes on the brain and we either become numb or hypersensitive. Mm -hmm. And I think you're saying the amygdala is on hyper alert and it's going, okay, look out, fight or flight, here comes the saber tooth. Or we become numb to it, to where we desensitize. We're just numb, period. We're not, we have the ability to feel because we're not operating on that part of our brain. Right. And I think we see those dynamics playing out in how people respond to trauma as well. Because when you talk about dissociation, actually, it's one of my biggest topics is when I talk about dissociative identity disorder is basically it's a survival mechanism, right? To store all of those memories in different parts. And those parts over time can really develop their own personalities, their own functioning and be present when other parts are not. So we see this in about 35% of those who are trafficked have a severe dissociative disorder. And oftentimes we're going to look at that and go, oh my gosh, it's schizophrenic because they're hearing voices, they're changing moods. All of a sudden, this different person, they're hearing things, the walls are moving, that kind of thing. All of those things can be associated with trauma because we know too, like if we're in a constant state where adrenaline's being released, right? So we're in this constant state of survival and adrenaline's going crazy. It actually reacts with a part of the brain and it makes it swell. Well, epinephrine, of course, is released then to reduce the swelling. The problem is if it doesn't keep up, the swelling continues to happen. And all of a sudden you hear stories of the walls were melting, the floor was moving. It's what we call a derealization, right? So the world doesn't seem as it really appears, like things are too close or too far away. And that's associated with schizophrenia, but people don't tend to realize it's part of trauma. It's part of the trauma story. It's actually called the Alice in Wonderland syndrome. And it's fascinating. It's like a weird acid trip, but you don't have to be on acid. So, So, I mean, there are so many different 
variations results and, and things that can happen when someone experiences trauma and it looks different in everybody. Does the trauma have an impact on perspective as well? In other words, say a traumatic event happened, there was an actual fact and we knew a fact about this trauma. Does that fact change or evolve in the person who experienced the trauma to where it's maybe worse, maybe it's less, maybe it's embellished? Like, do we see that? We see that in typical memories. We see that in memories where we go, oh yeah, my sixth birthday, I fell out of a tree and then every year it's like I fell out of a tree and then broke my ankle running to the house and then I fell out of a tree broke my ankle and then broke my nose or you know what I mean those Story kind gets of things. better mm-hmm. yeah um, when it comes to trauma memories because they are so rooted in emotion, mm-hmm. uh, they seem to be very concrete. It's the same story over and over and over again. And people think, oh my gosh, they must have made it up and just memorized this thing. No, it is so cemented in. It's and what it. happens when you see people start to heal from trauma, that's when the cement starts to break up a little bit. And then the memory becomes a little fuzzy. You're like, oh wait, did that happen here? You know what I mean? So it's yeah. like, it's very, very cemented in the more emotionally grounded it was the first time it happened. Yeah. The more difficult it is to break through. So let's talk about trauma in the workplace because we've all experienced trauma to a certain degree. And like I say, things are prevalent. And I do want to come back and talk about the trafficking a little bit and then give some education to our listeners. But we often try to separate our personal and professional personas. Does trauma talk really belong in the workplace? And if so, why? It really does because almost everybody's been impacted by trauma. And I wouldn't have said that three years ago. <laughs> but given the state of where we are and what's happened over the last three years, I think we've all experienced a degree of trauma trauma with the lockdowns, the isolation, just all of that element. It doesn't matter what side you're on. There was trauma happening. So I think it does need to be part of the workplace. I think some places have gone overboard with coddling. I think at some point we need to realize that an adult is an adult and should be responsible for their behavior and actions, but there should be resources available if that should be an issue. So I am different in my workplace as a professional than I am, let's say with my kids or even with my therapist, or you know what I mean? Um, Mm -hmm. I, I do carry a certain professionalism, but in my work, I have to address trauma because I work in inner city Flint and I work with children, children who've before this year had never been to school, who experienced daily violence, who whose parents struggle to get food. And of course, the drinking water. So for me, it's shootings, shootings. I mean, Michigan had that at the university that shooting and some of the students there, this is their second shooting that they've gone through, right? So you get to see it all, don't you? I really do. I really do. And even some of the parents, when they come through and the kids are like, they bond over the fact that their dads were shot, right? They bond over the fact that this drug dealer took out their cousin. So we see a lot of these dynamics and it's become very normalized to them, but you can see it in the behavior. You can see it in the lack of processing when it comes to new information and being educated. So it does need to be addressed. So I don't think it matters really what workplace you're in. The trauma may look a little bit differently, but I do think it needs to be addressed on a certain level. This episode is sponsored in part by Rainmaker Digital Solutions, featuring ActiveCampaign. Looking to drive growth with customer experience automation? ActiveCampaign, the number one marketing automation platform for e-commerce, B2C and B2B companies, gives you the email marketing, marketing automation, and CRM tools you need to create incredible customer experiences. ActiveCampaign is the platform we use to reach, nurture, convert, and grow our business, and you can use it to grow yours. You can see why 150,000 plus businesses like yours choose ActiveCampaign to help them grow and become preferred in the markets they serve. 
You can also start your free trial by visiting our website and clicking on the Active Campaign trial link. As a bonus, we'll also give you a digital copy of my book, Becoming Preferred, How to Outsell the Competition. And in the interest of full disclosure, I am a shareholder in the company. And now back to my conversation with Amy Joy. Does the nature of the trauma matter, like the degree of the trauma? So let's just say there's one to 10 on somebody evaluates that this is a one trauma. Another one could be a five. Is the process for dealing with it the same? It just takes longer or does it matter on what the actual trauma was? I think so. I think the the degree to which the trauma happens. So if we're dealing with like a level 10 trauma, it is going to mm-hmm. take a long time. And the elements to healing trauma really is time, talk and tears, right? So it's the ability to tell your story, to feel through it and it's going to take time. And that's for all traumas. I do think there are some traumas, maybe some level one to five traumas that can be dealt with, with things like EMDR, right? Which is the eye movement desensitive reprocessing thing. And I don't ever recommend it to the people I work with because we're dealing with much more severe trauma and oftentimes dissociation, which can bring out additional parts. It can bring out additional memories and additional traumas that now were destabilized. So really when it comes to dealing with trauma, we've got to do it from a place of safety because even as much as I want it to help my kids, I'm with them three hours a day, right? So the kids that I work with, they are not in a place of safety the other 21 hours a day, right? So in order for them to heal from trauma, they really need to be engulfed in people who are safe, environments who are safe on a consistent basis. And that's number one. So, you know, someone told me the other day, we're like, oh my gosh, he really needs to heal from that. And I'm like, he's 18. He's still at home. He can't heal until he gets out of there. There's no healing happening until we're in a safe enough place for the brain to go, ah, we're going to let go of that for a minute. You know, is it something you can heal yourself with, or is there always an intervention or a partner needed, a counselor, a therapist, someone who can guide us through the process? Yeah, I think it's the level of trauma. So I always recommend a therapist, and especially for those who work in a field that you work with highly vulnerable or traumatized people. So all social workers should have their own social worker. They should have their <laughs> right. own people to decompress. Um, but I do think it needs to be processed out with somebody. So for example, I've had the same therapist for nearly a decade. And there are questions I would never have asked myself in order to get to the root of something. I do think it's possible to work through some of your own stuff that's maybe not quite as deeply rooted. My second book, right? It was Write Your Story. It's a journal with prompts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think some of that can be done on your own, but I think the best case scenario is to have someone you can walk it through with and not your mother. (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah. How might trauma impact a developing person in terms of hireability and establishing a career? So if they don't take care of it, how does that impact them? A couple of different degrees. So sometimes people will go in overly confident when they really don't feel it. And then once they get in the job, they kind of fall apart and everything becomes kind of a mess. So we've had a recent example of a young lady who got hired in as a manager, but then got in and she thought everyone was talking about her, right? So this sort of paranoia set in and people didn't realize that what was really playing out was this sort of rooted trauma. So it can really impact hireability. I think it's impacted my own hireability to tell you the truth. I'm really independent. I'm really stubborn. I'm really opinionated. I effectively got canceled here in Michigan. So I couldn't get a job to save my life because once COVID hit and the lockdowns hit, my business evaporated. I couldn't go talk to people because my audience had gone away. I had to really pivot somehow, but then I found myself so mad, so angry that I was protesting. And so now when potential employers Google me, the first thing that pops up is me protesting. So I'm like, (laughs) I am so canceled. I'm never going to get a job. So I was like, 
I'm pretty sure this employer never Googled me. <laughs> yeah, way to go. And it's a matter of dealing with it. And like you say, we've all had trauma to degree, and sometimes we don't recognize what the trauma is. I mm-hmm. had childhood trauma, and again, not as severe as some people are never trafficked and everything else, but trauma for me. But I just sweep it under the carpet. But it rears its ugly head from time to time, and you get these triggers, and these triggers show up, and they do affect us on a work, a professional level, on a personal level. So I think it does matter. As far as the therapy, and you mentioned it, you teach a writing workshop, and you've written a book mm-hmm. about the subject too. What is the therapeutic value of writing? Oh, it's huge. So what writing does, it connects the imagination, creation, and emotional parts of our brain with Hmm. the logic and language parts of our brain. So now we're starting to be really holistic and be able to tell our story. Yeah. From beginning to end. And a lot of times victims or survivors, they'll tell their stories from the middle to the end to the beginning. It's all over the place. It's chunky and it's weird. And they don't even understand it themselves. They've got bits and pieces. But now when you start to write things down and you start to recognize, okay, well, this is what my body's feeling. I'm tense in my shoulders. Why does my stomach hurt? And they'll notice the more that they write, the more that they can write out their own story in a linear way, in a logical way, the less those physical symptoms appear too. So it's extremely valuable, not only so that they can reorganize their own mind, but so they can start to alleviate a lot of the autoimmune issues that we see, a lot of the body pain, the joint pain, all of those things are associated with actual trauma, mental trauma, emotional trauma. So we see those things really disappear. One of the conferences I went to was just amazing. It was put on by HeartMath. I don't know if you've heard of heart math, but we watched as this young lady, she was in a high state of arousal and they hooked her up to the heart monitor and we all breathed together for like five minutes. The closer she got to sort of this, what this heart mind coherence thing is, the more this beautiful picture sort of emerged in front of us on this monitor. And it was just amazing. We were all in this state of mesmer, but we were peaceful and calm. And I think that's what expressive therapies do as well, is they start to connect the heart and the brain and the emotions with logical thinking so that if I'm at work and the next time my boss snaps at me, I'm not triggered into a freeze, right? Okay, he's going to hit me next. You know what I mean? All of a sudden my brain goes, wait, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm feeling. Is it true? Is it true? That makes sense. The connection, because you're feeling it, the creative, you're thinking it, but the actual act of writing and putting it down requires that linear thinking and putting it down and putting it in proper grammatical form, or at least close to it. So as you call it an expressive therapy, I like it. It's a good term for that. Now, writing doesn't come easy for everyone. And for you, it might be a chore. For me, it takes me three years to write a book, but really only three months. Three months, I could do it, (laughs) but I procrastinate because I just don't like the process, right? Do you have any tips for the person who doesn't know where to start with writing or journaling? A lot of my journaling starts with, I don't know what to write today. (laughs) Right, right. And it'll start with, I had eggs for breakfast. So I just kind of start where I'm at. And then probably two pages later, I'm like, ah, we're into it. And I can't seem to get into a book to write a book without doing a full outline first, right? Because I've been sort of conditioned through school. And now everyone has a process. Yeah, I'm like, okay, everything's got to be outlined. And then I can take those chunks and I can write those chunks. I don't have to go in order, but writing can be a very daunting process, but it can be very short too. Every morning I write about a paragraph and every evening before I go to bed, I write another paragraph. Yeah, makes sense. I start with gratitude. I've developed four or five questions that I ask myself. So I follow a template. And the first thing, what am I grateful for today? And I start with gratitude because it tends to spiral me up in a positive way. What do I want to accomplish today? What are the accomplishments going to be today? At the end of the day, I might be, what did I accomplish? What did I procrastinate on that I didn't do? 
what would I do better? And so I just asked myself the questions. So it's like my own therapist has asked me the questions and mm -hmm. it's a great way to do it. And then I document photos and different things. There's some great apps if you don't like to actually write, but you want to type it or however you want to do it to keep track of it. There's tons of goodies there. And I like the whole idea of the journaling. Dealing with trauma can obviously be unpleasant. Sometimes we want to sweep it under the rug. And I'm sure some of us would rather try to forget it and move on and be determined, if you will. What are the consequences of not dealing with or addressing one's trauma? It'll eventually rear its ugly head. And whether that's exploding on other people or having a complete mental breakdown. Relationship. Um, yeah. So I was that way for a very long time. I don't know if you read the last book, but I have dissociative identity disorder. So a big part of who I was for a very long time was not who I really was. And I was like, yeah, this thing kind of happened. And I remember bits and pieces here and there, but I'm fine. We're going about life and everything is fine until my marriage fell apart. And then it was like, oh my gosh, what's happening with my kids? And it was just this spiraling. All of a sudden I was crying every day for no reason. I mean, there was a reason, right. but it was like, what is happening? And what happened the moment that I ended my marriage and I was on my own, it was very liberating in one sense, but at the same time, my brain was like, all right, you're safe enough now. Let's deal with all the junk, <laughs> you know? So it all just came up. And when I went to that retreat, that was not long after I had got on my own and I couldn't ignore it anymore. So the more we try to stuff it down, the more it's going to eat at us and not just in a mental, emotional kind of way, but again, physically, right? It's going to permeate an impact across all our life. What does the mm -hmm. process of healing generally entail? What's it look like? If you're explaining um, the process to somebody, how would you explain it? Yeah. So the process of healing really are those three elements, those three T's, time, talk, and tears. It's finding somebody that you are safe enough with, that you trust enough to tell your yucky parts to. And that can be difficult or impossible some days, but to stick with it and to feel emotionally into it and be vulnerable enough to be like, yes, I'm feeling really sad today. And that can be very very hard as well. And then time. It really does take time. I'm a full component of the traditional psycho talk therapy. Just get in there and just start working it out. And the thing is, is when you've got people who are highly dissociative, oftentimes language isn't a part of their healing to begin with. They need to come up with other creative ways. So when I first started therapy, actually we communicated through me drawing pictures and building with blocks and coloring and simple words. What we actually did early on was create these little postcards with one word on them. And sometimes the word was a room or a house or a person or a feeling. And we would go through those cards and just pull out the cards that were relevant. And then my therapist could ask the question pertaining to those cards because language doesn't come when you're sunk into the trauma. No, you're in the middle of it. Healing's possible, obviously. Do we ever arrive or is it just a constant ongoing process, healing process? Or do we wake up one day and go, okay, I'm healed and I'm all better now because we want to be better? Right. Or do we learn just to manage it? Yeah, I think some days, some days I wake up and I'm like, woo, we're good. Yeah, I'm cured. Um, and yeah, but I do think it's a level of maintenance. I don't necessarily think people need to be in therapy two, three times a week for the rest of their lives. I think they can get to a point where they can recognize, oh, this is happening right now in my body and my thoughts, and I need to go write it down. I need to go connect with somebody and talk this out. So when they get to that point where they know I need to take care of this, I think it's just a matter of maintenance. Sure. No, and that makes sense. It's just something to look after, like exercise or anything else. We have to protect our confidence. We have to protect our mental health. And so our day-to-day -day routines, there are things obviously to support that. And that could be diet, it could be exercise. Expressive therapies, I love the term. Let's link this now to the human trafficking, because I thought that this was interesting. So trauma can then make you vulnerable to 
being humanly child. How did where how did that linkage come to be and what's been your experience around that? Yeah, so even the data supports it to begin with. So the data says about 91% of those who've been trafficked or are currently being sex trafficked have a history of early childhood sexual abuse. So for about those 10 years that I ran the nonprofit, we actually assisted victims of trafficking and they were in the midst of, right? A lot of them, it was a direct rescue. It was like, go get them. We need to take them here. And every single one of them that we met, everyone had a history of childhood sexual abuse. So yeah, there was nobody left on the fringes here from the very beginning. And what it does is it primes the brain. It primes the individual to accept this kind of behavior. It's familiar, right? If they're living with a predator, then their teenage and young adult years, they're going to recognize that predator is familiar. It may not be safer or they might go, okay, well, that's not safe, but it's the only thing I really know. They know that Um, world, that zone. What should we be looking for? Because I know you teach programs to businesses, hotels and things. What are you teaching? What's the curriculum? Yeah. So, um, so technically, you know, the, the definition is, um, you know, for human trafficking, it's got to involve an action and a means of, and a purpose. And the purpose is always exploitation. It's always, you know, someone gaining from somebody else's loss. Um, but when it comes to the means of, that's a big one that we focus on. So the means of, and that's sort of the way in, right? So a lot of people, what they think is that kids are being kidnapped from the bus stop and they're being trolled at the mall and someone followed me in the Walmart parking lot. Well, chances are they want your car or your purse. They don't necessarily want a kicking, screaming kid. So we actually see less than 3% of that actually happening here in the U.S. What happens the majority of the time is the grooming in process. So what we often see is very quick psychological, emotional relationships or attachments to individuals that a child or an adolescent didn't previously know. If within two weeks, they're like, oh my gosh, I love him so much. He's amazing. Whether it's online or in person, that's a huge red flag for us. Groomers, predators know how to pick out vulnerabilities. And those vulnerabilities can be anything from a basic need so if they're hungry, thirsty, they haven't been home in three days and they've been on the streets and in a place to crash, but it can also be 12 year olds been online and mom works two jobs. And the biggest calling card for predators, I'm bored. You got a 12 year old girl right. saying I'm bored online. And you've got predators coming out of the woodwork because yeah, she needs terrible. affection and attention. Right. That's what she's saying. And just by their very development, that's where they're at. They're searching for that love and belonging piece. So we often see that right now, especially the last three years, we've seen the uptick in social media, but we've also seen a huge increase in the infant, toddler, and child pornography rings. And it's happening within families. It's happening within communities. Isn't this cycle generational sometimes, or if the abusers sometimes or often have been abused? Yeah, it tends to be that way. So not everybody who's abused will go on to abuse, but the majority of those who do abuse have been abused. I think we're talking about a whole bigger issue when it comes to cultural dynamics. Right. The first victim that we interviewed, she was she was seven the first time she was traded for a set of household appliances. Right. So she was traded by her mother to her mother's pimp. And this woman could not go back far enough to not find prostitution in her lineage. It went back generations. But also within the culture, you found that the men were expected to be pimps and their status was dependent on how many victims they had underneath them. We see the dynamics change a little bit depending on the geographic area we're in. When it comes to more rural counties, we've got a lot of kids who are just not on the radar because they're not in school, they're at home and they're being abused by their family members. But when it comes to satanic ritual abuse, right, we find these groups embedded within what we would see as a normal or typical religious organization, but underneath it's not. 
And they're often in these rural counties and right. just operating out of people's homes. Right. So, yeah. Well, so it really de- depends. We've seen it I in think- the polygamous communities. We've seen it with 12, 13 year old girls are being married off to 70 year old men. Fundamentalists, they've got different perspectives for sure. So with trauma and most of us experiencing trauma to different degrees, when it comes to the trafficking part, if there was one or two things that you could tell an audience, hey, here's what you should be on the lookout for. Um, so we should be looking for that individual who's in consistent contact online with a child or an adolescent or young adult, right? If they're not somebody that they already know or met in person, and even then I'd be highly suspect if your kid is, sure. if they're shutting down their phones, if they're locking things up, if they're in the middle of the night, texting and calling, if you've got that quick psychological attachment to somebody they didn't previously know. One of the last cases I told the teacher, a teacher had called me and said, the 15 year old wants to meet her best friend who she met during COVID lockdowns, right? Who's 21 years old. And I said, no rational adult, no healthy adult wants to be friends with a 15 year old girl. And and definitely all of these social media apps, all of these things, even the gaming industry. So a lot of what we've seen, especially with little boys who are trafficked, because that's on the uptick as well. About half of them now are little boys, but we see it a lot in the gaming industry, right? Where they're talking to strangers online, playing a game. I would say watch every social media app. Yeah. Be alert and be aware. Yeah. Know what your kids are yep. doing. Absolutely. And they're starting to address that from a congressional point of view, but parents, the responsibility is on us. I want to pivot a little bit. You are also an entrepreneur and a businesswoman. You've stopped and started things. You've had things that have worked well, things that haven't worked out for you. And I was listening to an interview or a podcast, I think it was, and you were talking about persistence and when to give up. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually thought it was interesting because you're telling your own story about your business and most of us work for a business or whatever, and we try things, but there's a time when persistence can be counterproductive. And so I just want to shift a little bit from your subject matter, which I think is highly valuable. And people can go to your website, get your books. We'll put all that information in the show notes. Let's talk about the lessons you've learned from the persistence though, and when to throw in the towel and when not to. Yeah. So this counterproductive persistence thing kind of crept up on me in moments of frustration because I consistently try to make things work when it just wasn't working. And I think the nonprofit went on far longer than it should have when we spent resources and money and time trying to make something happen that just wasn't going to happen. I think our emotions get in the way of the logic and like, okay, is this really panning out on paper? What does this really look like? And I had to do that even my speaking events. I was like, I actually need a regular job to support myself. And I need to stop looking at this. Like I'm going to pour my last $10 into advertising so I can get somewhere with the speaking. And I just lost $10. So you start with the goals and the key is you set goals. Like, you know, use the example, hey, I want to be a millionaire. I'm going to do something to make a million dollars. And what we should be doing is looking at our goals and going, A, are they realistic? When we talk about <laughs> smart goals, is it achievable? And do I have what it takes? And I really like the line you had where we raise up our kids where, hey, you can do anything. You can be anyone you want to. But that's just not true, is it? No, no, it's not. So I don't think it's realistic. I don't think it's helpful to push things that aren't going to be fruitful, you know, and I've had to address these things like, cause I'm a painter and I love my paint. I put my paintings up for sale today. Even I was just like, whatever, but I need to release the expectation of the results. I need to go, you know what, this is what I'm doing. This is what I love to do. And if it works great, 
but I need to have an income in the meantime. And yeah. so it, reality it, sets in and then it's the yeah. process. You fall in love with the process. And if you're amazing at it, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It's like right. being a singer, timing is everything. I've had books that have gone on bestsellers. Other ones, you're expecting the same result and all of a sudden, nope. And right. so I always call it Mr. Market has a different surprise for you, right? But it's just negative feedback to help you change course in your direction. So you can take it personally. You go, oh, poor me. Or you go, hey, that didn't work. But there is a time that you've identified that, hey, you know what? I'm moving on. I'm dropping this, moving on. I'm going to give myself an ultimatum. Here's where it goes. And if it's not working, I'm going to do something else. And it's right. okay to do that. It's okay. Yeah. It's healthy to do that. It right? is. You're not a yep. failure. We, we judge ourselves. Oh, I'm a loser. I can't do this. No, you're just not good at that. It's like, I love music. I love doing music, but I'm never going to be somebody somebody pays dollars to for their music. So I've stayed within my wheelhouse and we all have unique abilities. Mm -hmm. Like I think we do. But it's finding what your unique ability is. And sometimes the market rewards it and sometimes it doesn't. Right. And it's right. okay. And it's when we compare ourselves to others that you identify that we get in trouble. It's when we That's the dream killer, isn't it? Yeah. It is. Yeah. yeah. We've got to compare yeah. ourselves to ourselves. Am, right. I better, am I better this year than I was last year? Am I, right. learning, am I ahead of the curve? So yeah. I think it all goes into it. But there is a time to throw in the towel for sure. There is. And I think those failures, they force us to pivot. And sometimes those pivots are the best things that ever could have happened. Exactly. So yeah. sometimes it just takes way longer than it should have because we're stubborn as heck. So, well, exactly. <laughs> we talked about our egos get in the way and we're going, I'm going to make this happen. We try and do it through just brawn and not brain alone. And the universe is telling you something. So Deepak Chopra has a line. He goes, water flows naturally around the boulder because it's water. Birds fly effortlessly because they're birds. And we try and move things. We try and bulldoze them. And we're just going to put the energy behind it. And sometimes we need to just look at the flow and go, is this flowing or not? And it doesn't mean give up or take an easy route, but it does mean take a good look at it and use that as information as well. So right. good, good yeah. stuff. Hey, yeah. well, this has been really, really, really interesting. And I really appreciate you talking about trauma. We'll have all your contact information. People will be able to find yeah. you, find your books. You write them more in a narrative. It looks like a story like you, me, and B. Mm -hmm. There you've got different um, stories and you know anecdotes in there. How much of those books are inspired through reality and how much for we've had to add to it? The books are reality. The, yeah. the books are, I would say, 98% absolute. You're right. So they're my experiences. Yeah. So and you're very vulnerable I, in them. You're good in your stories. <laughs> Thank you. So I think the last one that came out took me three years to release because it came from such a vulnerable place. And I did change almost all of the names in there, not my own or the parts, but yeah. like everyone else. Sure. But, but the experiences are yeah. what the experiences were. And I took a lot out. I actually took about 20,000 words out of that book. Wow. <laughs> so. Wow. Yeah. The epistles of Amy Joy. Good. Yeah, right, so, right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, you're very good in your language and people can check you out. Like I say, your education on human trafficking and education seminars at the interest organizations. I know you do a good job of that and help create awareness for that. So really appreciate you following that cause. And as far as trauma goes, we all have it. It's working through those processes and to know you're normal and to be able to talk about it. And it's okay. It affects us personally and professionally, but it's okay to have those conversations. And the vulnerability is part of the healing process, isn't it? It is. It really, really is. Yep. And, and without vulnerability, there's no growth. So we've got to sort of embrace that a little bit. So. Well, well said. Yeah. Amy Joy, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. This was awesome. My pleasure. This podcast is created and associated with Summit Media. My executive producer is Beth Smith and director of research, Tori Smith. The fee for the show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting. This podcast is subject to copyright by Summit Media. Goodbye.